I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode, we'll break down the new mega trade deal in Asia. We'll discuss whether the agreement cements China as the economic and diplomatic leader in the region, while putting the U.S. on the outside looking in. Plus, President-elect Biden has named his trade transition team. We'll look into the challenges they'll face and what direction they might steer the incoming administration. And we'll take a look at the new investment ban on Chinese companies linked to the Chinese military. Stay tuned for all that and much, much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Trade Guys, we got a lot to talk about. Let's start with Asia. Asia forms the world's biggest trade block. We call it RCEP. So does the RCEP signing change economic and strategic dynamics for the United States and the Asia Pacific. So it seems to me that all of Asia is locked into a trade deal and we ain't part of it. What do you guys make of it? Well, my answer is no and yes. I don't think it makes a big economic dent in the beginning. It's like all ASEAN or APEC agreements. It's designed to be incremental. The Asians tend to believe in taking things slowly and smoothly. So its initial uh, concessions, if you will, are small, but there's a significant potential for growth for a very long period of time. 20 years from now, you'll have, I think, a significant agreement. In the short run, I don't think it's going to change a lot economically. They've covered, I think, 92% of tariffs, but if you're a trade negotiator, you know that 92% really isn't very much because that gives you plenty of room to protect all the stuff you want to protect. Because if you count by tariff lines, you really need to get up to 98 or 99 percent if you want to have an agreement that produces meaningful liberalization. Their IP chapter is Swiss cheese. Financial services are exempt. And there's a national security exception that sort of swallows the rules. So not big steps forward. But to go back to your question, symbolically, I think it's very significant getting virtually all the nations in Asia together to come to a decision and reach an agreement is important. And I think it's a significant message to the people that are outside the tent, uh, namely us, that they're going ahead on their own and they're going ahead uh, without us. And in the long run, it's a sign that I think the decline of American influence in the region. And it includes China. It includes China. So, I mean, RCEP stands for Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. It covers 30% of the world economy and 30% of its population, and it puts China at the center of the largest trade bloc in the world. We're on the outside looking in. The optics of it don't look good. Well, look, China is where they all have always been. They're the center of factory Asia. That is the way to think about China's economic relationships. But here's what I, one of the things I've learned in four years of President Donald Trump is all trade agreements have the same photo op. They all have the same picture of smiling leaders with flags in the backgrounds, no matter how much or little content there is in the agreement. So it's very important to look past the photo op and look at the agreement. Now, right, it is 30% of the world economy. There's a lot of dudes in this photo op. Yes, and there are, because ASEAN itself, which ASEAN stands for the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, is 10 economies. And now those economies are have wide differences in development. The low end, I think, is still Laos. 
high end is Singapore, everything in between. Those are these island economies. These 10 over the last 25 years have negotiated free trade agreements with six partners, Japan, Korea, Australia, New Zealand, the People's Republic of China, and India. And those six plus the 10 ASEAN nations, those are the 16 who changed the name of what they had from ASEAN plus six to RCEP. So the key for me is, Bill made the point about the coverage is not all that comprehensive, but more importantly, these agreements existed. So whatever trade liberalization had happened has probably already happened. Now, it's not to say RCEP is nothing. RCEP is at minimum a consolidating move. They probably got tariff lines harmonized. It may help trade. And Bill is also correct that ASEAN is sort of this slow-moving vehicle that always moves in the direction of more openness. So over time, I think this will make a big difference. But today we have a symbolic statement about where the U.S. perhaps ought to be. I think it's important to note, too, that I think China handled this whole thing very cleverly. I've, I've been asked a lot over the last few days whether this is part of their plot to take over the continent or something like that. And in fact, as near as I can tell, they played a very restrained, almost kind of backseat role and, and very much played the nice guy role in contrast to what they're doing elsewhere in the region, what they're doing in the South China Sea. I think this was a place where they decided they could sort of win-win for them. They could take a back seat and offset some of the negative publicity they've gotten. At the same time, they get what they want. They get a major agreement without the United States in it. And because it's a modest agreement, it doesn't really force them to do anything that they don't want to do. You know, it doesn't step all over their digital trade restrictions. It doesn't step all over their uh, other kinds of restrictions. It doesn't really force them to alter their behavior, but they get credit for being part of it. But what it means in the absence of an effective U.S. response is the pendulum is going to swing in China's direction. You know, for 70 years, our policy has been to prevent the domination of a single power in Asia. And in the beginning, we were worried about Japan post-war, and now we're worried about China. But in order to implement that policy, you've got to be there. And we spent four years disappearing, particularly economically, ever since Trump pulled out of TPP. So the challenge for the incoming administration is to decide how to get back. And, you know, his national security advisors are going to say, you have to get back. You have to reassure all these countries that we're there and we're there for the long haul and that we're a counterweight to Chinese pressure. And the best way to get back, they're going to tell them, is, is TPP. Um, and then the president's trade advisors will come in and say that TPP is toxic politically and you need to be very careful about that. And that's why he gets the big bucks. He'll get to decide. This is your reward for being elected president. Does this RCEP agreement, I mean, Bill, you talked about the backseat that China's had. Does it put China in the driver's seat in the region, both in terms of economic importance and in international influence? Not by itself, because it's not that far reaching by itself. They're already kind of in the driver's seat. You know, they're the biggest economy and they have kind yeah. of a spoken wheel arrangement. They're the center and everything, you know, everybody trades with them. They have a long history of bullying those countries. And those are countries that have, you know, they've got a several thousand year history with China. I guess the question is, does this codify it? In the absence of us doing something, that's where it's going. Yes. Yes. Look, China was the biggest trading partner for all these economies before RCEP. That was the basis for RCEP. But the same thing happened with the original NAFTA. Canada was our number one trading partner. Mexico was our number three trading partner the day before NAFTA. Okay. The integration happened because they were big trading partners, not as a result of the agreement. 
So that almost always happens in these arrangements. But China is vitally important to the commercial success of all their neighboring economies. So is this a wake-up call for the U.S. and the EU to work together to counter this? Well, I hope so. I don't think the EU is awake yet. I mean, they're slowly coming out of hibernation, but I think it's going to take a while for them to perceive the issue quite the same way that we do. They're there. I I mean, when I used to give speeches in Europe pre-COVID, I would always end up insulting everybody by telling them they were two years behind the United States and understanding the China challenge. I still think they're two years behind. The French must have loved that, Bill, when you told them that. (laughs) Well, you don't see them quite as much. One of my favorite stories was when I was on the Hill, we would occasionally fire off nasty press releases about something that Europe had done. And after about three weeks of silence, somebody from the British embassy would come in and would explain. And, you know, the British are very good at talking to the colonials. They use one and two syllable words and talk slow to make sure that we understand. And he would explain in, in, in great detail why they were right and we were wrong. And I would explain in equal great detail for about 20 minutes why we were right and they were wrong. And then at the end, he would sort of look at me and say, well, you know, it wasn't us. It was the French. Yeah. Course. And I would always say, you know, this is the genius of the, then the European community, now the EU. They send in the innocent to atone for the guilty. The French never showed up. You know, we always saw the British yep. and occasionally the Germans. And it's still that way. And the Dutch. I love when the British try to talk down to us. It just never works out for them very well. <laughs> Old habits die hard. You know, they have this idea of their dominees within the Dominion, but uh, that's... <laughs> it just doesn't work out so well for them. It never works out, you know, and they made some good rock and roll music after we invented rock and roll, you know? Okay. So you're a Beatles fan? A Stones fan? Stones. Love the Beatles too. My favorite song in the whole world is a Stones song. So I'm... Which one's that? Ruby Tuesday. Great song. The restaurant chain just closed. Oh, Ruby Tuesday closed? That's too bad. Yeah, it just went bankrupt, yes. Oh, that's too bad. Oh, man. One more COVID casualty. Man, the restaurant industry is hurting. But I will tell you, on a good restaurant note, my brother-in-law, Chef Douglas Katz, his restaurant, Jug, in Cleveland, was named to Esquire's list of best new restaurants in America. Wow, congratulations. Congratulations. Big deal, man. That's an important list. That is a very important list. And the reviewer who writes that list said you just want to order everything at Chef Douglas Katz's restaurant. So if you're in Cleveland, go visit my brother-in-law. He's got some of the best Mediterranean food on the planet. So that's the shameless plug for this episode. But back to this. So you too believe that Joe Biden will be the next president of the United States. Let's talk about the transition team. What are their biggest challenges right now? Well, look, they face an interesting challenge because as Bill and I have both discussed over the months and years, Trade's an issue that divides Democrats and divides them on on some fairly specific lines. But they've just finished a campaign that was mostly a referendum on the other guy. So while there were a number of commitments, in fact, if you went to the campaign website, you could find a number of specific promises about economic policy and international economic policy. There's a lot of problems or gaps that remain to be bridged in the coalition that comes into office with uh, President Biden. So that'll remain the challenge. Those divisions didn't get addressed during the campaign, as you might expect they wouldn't. They come in with that situation, but they also come in with the same problems that are there for everything else. So the WTO doesn't magically get fixed because we change precedents. Problems that existed before still exist. So it's a tough job. I think one of their dilemmas in our area is trying to figure out how to prioritize. I mean, the incoming president was clear in the campaign that 
his top priority was repairing the domestic economy, recovering from the pandemic. And I don't think anybody's going to disagree with those are very important priorities. But you're going to have uh, trade issues on your desk on the first day. Trump's not going to get rid of the tariffs. So we're going to have China tariffs to think about. We're going to have steel and aluminum tariffs to think about. We've got the question of who's going to be the WTO director general to think about because Trump is blocking Ngozi Okonjo-Iweala, and that will probably end up in purgatory until January 21st uh, when they'll have a meeting and they'll see if the U.S. is going to continue to block. There's a ministerial coming up of the WTO probably in June. So there's a whole bunch of things that are on his his plate. I will tell you that I think in the last two weeks, he's gotten a dose of that because he started to talk to foreign leaders. And I will guarantee you every single one of them brought up trade because they all have trade issues with us right now. And so I, I think they're realizing that they're going to have to pay attention to the issues that they're going to be facing. I think the subject's unavoidable. And so we'll get into trade policy quickly just because of that's what happens in a transition. And the economic relations with the U.S. are one of the most pressing foreign policy matters for many of our friends and neighbors. One of the important issues is the renewal of trade promotion authority, which expires the end of next June. And people are circling around already talking about that because it's coming up. In the past, it's expired sometimes for years at a time. So the world does not come to an end on July 1st. But there may be some trade agreements out there in progress that will need new authority because we are negotiating right now with Kenya, with the UK, with Japan for phase two, maybe with China, depends on how you look at it. Some of those agreements may need extended authority, depends on if and when they're concluded. I don't think that a Biden administration is simply going to cut them off. That would be a slap in the face to the other countries. I mean, they may not be able to reach agreement, but I, I think the negotiations will continue. You know, if we reach an agreement with the UK, which I think is a popular idea, we've talked about the agreement and how hard it might be to reach agreement, but you can't find very many people who say that, you know, that they're bad guys. We shouldn't negotiate with them. If you reach an agreement with them in, say, May, that won't qualify for current authority. And so then they're going to have to decide, do they want to come back and, and try to renew it? And then, you know, you get into what, what Scott and I have had experience with over the years. You get into a trade bill because if you're going to renew it, it's one of these issues that it, if it looks like the train is leaving the station, everybody wants to throw their baggage on board. So you get lots and lots of amendments. And there's lots of people out there with agendas a lot of them will fight the last war. You know, how do we make sure that you can't do some of the things that Trump did ever again? Not that anybody's going to ever do them again, but fighting the last war is one of the things that Americans do really well. And then there's a bunch of other people who want to fight some of the next wars, like yeah. environment and climate change. Well, don't forget, tariff may, may run again in 2024. Well, so yes, that's going to that. make it much more difficult because he will try to maintain his control over the Republican Party and have them all tow his line however uncomfortable that may be on trade. And that will mean, you know, coming to a, a resolution on this is going to be much more difficult. Well, look, there's nothing like a good fight in Congress to bring out all the issues on a complicated issue like trade. And I would just say that the coalition that passed Trade Promotion Authority in 2015 under President Barack Obama, but Republican House and Senate, is not the same coalition that's going to be passing Trade Promotion Authority in 2021 or whenever it does happen again. So that is going to be interesting to watch because that suggests growth and creativity in political coalitions. So looking forward to that.
The trade guys have seen their share of skirmishes in Congress. But the question I have for you is this. What is the situation within the Biden world among trade progressives and trade centrists? What's happening there? Is that something to watch? Yeah, it is something to watch because it's taken kind of an interesting turn. I mean, it's not within the Biden campaign specifically. It's amongst Democrats. This is all oversimplification. But I think for a long time, the division really was between the pro-trade forces, particularly members who represented agriculture areas that are always pro-trade and pro-free trade, and what you might call trade skeptics, which tended to be people who opposed every agreement that came up on the grounds that it wasn't good enough on whatever the reason was. Usually it wasn't good enough on labor and environment, but they simply opposed. And I think what's begun to happen over this year, really, was a realization on, on the part of the democratic left that simply being against these things isn't really good enough. And they've kind of turned a corner in their own thinking and are starting to develop more elaborate arguments about what they want instead. In other words, they've, they've become more positive. They're not simply against agreements. They are beginning to articulate what would make a good agreement. And their fundamental thesis is, which I don't entirely agree with, but their thesis is that the problem with past agreements is that they've become tools of corporate interests. And they serve the interests of large multinational corporations, and they do it in a way that hurt America's workers. And that the benefits of trade, to the extent that there are any, and some of them would dispute that there are any, but the benefits don't flow to the workers. They flow to the big corporations and the stockholders and to Wall Street. And we need a new approach to negotiating that has the workers and uh, public goods, uh, global commons like the environment, first in mind, and that we structure our agreement to make sure that they're the prime beneficiaries. I don't think they're quite yet at the point of fleshing out exactly everything that that means. But it makes for, a, I think, a, a richer debate, because you don't just have people that are pro-trade and anti-trade. You've got people that are both pro-trade, but different kinds of trade. And it's going to make, I think, for a much more interesting debate going forward. And oddly, the test market for this approach was run in the Trump administration on USMCA in the House. This is the process that Chairman Neal of the Ways and Means Committee led by appointing this working group. And the working group was principally the trade skeptics or critics from the past who were reflexively no. And those very members found a way to get to yes. So that's something I hope gets reapplied. Because I think the coalition is going to be different. The question is how constructive it'll be. Well, and keep in mind, too, that's a very good example, an example of the classic Democratic playbook that I think Biden will employ, too. Because if you look at what Clinton did on NAFTA, what Obama did on, on Korea, on Chorus, what Pelosi and Richie Neal did on USMCA, they were all the same. You know, you pronounce the agreement negotiated by other people as not good enough. You say, I'm going to fix it. You go off and have another negotiation, or you make the, in the USMCA case, you make Lighthizer go off and have another negotiation. And then when it comes back, you pronounce it improved because I insisted on improving it. So now I can support it. And that's the way they square the circle on these things for 25 years. And when they address the question that we were talking about earlier is what to do about TPP, what to do about Asia, I think that's where they go. You know, Biden has already said it's not good enough. So the next step will be, you know, let's make it better. And then once they make it better, assuming they can, then I think they'll be in. 
Now that's not the next six months. We're yeah. talking a couple of years minimum. All right. Well, something to watch for sure. Finally, let's talk about China again. President Trump, who still is president, issued an executive order on Thursday barring Americans from investing in a list of companies with ties to the Chinese military. He argues that such investments pose a risk to United States national security. What are the concerns about this? Is this more financial decoupling? Does this order move the United States and China closer to full-on financial decoupling? Well, let's start with the list itself. The list of 31 companies was pre-existing, and it's a list created by the Department of Defense. I want to stipulate that they probably know a national security problem when they see one. Yeah. And that this list had some provenance from the people we trust to judge our national security risks. So that's the first thing. Second thing is that U.S. investment in these companies is likely small, U.S. national investment in this company, because U.S. investment in China is relatively small. In the overall scheme of things, the largest source of foreign investment for China is far and away Hong Kong. Over half comes from Hong Kong. Uh, the U.S. is usually between 2 or 3% of a total Chinese new foreign investment every year. So those are the flows of investment. So this is a relatively small effect and for practical purposes won't really change the magnitude of foreign investment in China. But if there were Americans engaged in these investments, probably won't be in the future and it probably shouldn't be. I think that's right. I think Scott has described it very well. It seems to be the latest step in an effort to further rupture the relationship between the United States and China in the name of national security. There are rumors of up to 20 additional executive orders being prepared before he leaves office to deal with other aspects of the relationship. It's hard to predict what the effect will be, not knowing exactly what they are. If you just keep adding more companies to various sanctions lists, it's, it's a very particularized action, and it doesn't have a big effect unless there's a you know, a significant U.S. investment in or involvement in the targeted entity. One thing to keep in mind is the Chinese are not an innocent, aggrieved party in all of this. You know, they, they've taken a series of actions that I think any administration would respond to. I mean, most recently, they've forced out the uh, pro-democracy legislators in the, in the Hong Kong legislature and have effectively closed it down because the other ones uh, resigned. So as Scott was saying, you know, the biggest investment in China comes from Hong Kong. Well, you know, a few more months, it's not going to be Hong Kong anymore. It's going to be China. And that'll, that'll be called domestic investment. It won't be foreign investment. And this is a blatant reneging on the commitments they made to the British in the retrocession agreement of the 90s. They keep doing these things that any U.S. administration is going to respond to. I don't look to see the Biden administration unravel a lot of these things. Where I do think there may be a difference, and what we have to watch for is how we define national security, because this has become a national security debate. It's not just about trade. We have defined the things they're doing as threats to American national security. So we need to do a better job, I think, of figuring out what does that mean? What is the threat? You know, and the reality is, if you're Peter Navarro, the threat is virtually everything. He's a scaredy cat. Yes. I think the Biden administration is going to have a narrower and more nuanced definition of what is really a threat to our national security as opposed to what, you know, on the surface looks like a threat to our national security. You know, Bill made a cameo appearance in Peter Navarro's movie. Really? Yes. The Peter Navarro produced a piece of Stalinist propaganda called Death by China. I think it's still available on YouTube. 
And there's about a 15 second clip of our friend trade guy, Bill Reinsch. Doing what? Speaking? Being the corporate stooge of the moment. This is a sore point with me because it's an IP issue. They interviewed me. Uh, They subsequently sent me an email and asked for permission to use the interview in the movie. And I declined to give them permission. Uh, And they went ahead and used it anyway. Ah, so it's a real IP issue. It is. And I missed the boat. I should have sued them. If you've got time to kill on YouTube and you're eagle-eyed, you can find a younger-looking Bill Reinsch. Oh, man. It was back when I had more hair. This is true. That's right. Oh, this is great. All right. Well, Trey, guys, thanks as always. This is really fascinating. All of us are lucky to have you every week. So thanks very much. We'll see you next week at the same trade time, same trade channel. Thank you. Thanks. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.